Good morning, brothers and sisters. During this holy octave of Easter, we hear the resurrection accounts of our Lord, and we begin to see, as the body of Christ, what has changed in his glorified body. What he can do now that in his earthly body before the resurrection, he was not able to do, at least not in the same way. Several times we've heard that Jesus can walk through walls. Now in his resurrected body, he can pass right through locked doors. He doesn't have to open the door, he just walks right through it. He can also be in multiple places simultaneously. It's called bilocation or trilocation. These miraculous events already take place in the lives of the apostles in our readings today. In our first reading, we heard about how Peter, when he would walk through a crowd, people would lay the sick down just so that his shadow would pass over them and they would be cured just by Peter's shadow. There's also another passage in the Acts of the Apostles that speaks about Peter's handkerchief, you know, that thing you wipe your face with and blow your nose. Basically, some, some Catholics had stolen it, and whenever they laid it on somebody who was sick, they would miraculously recover. It is the first second-class relic. So in the life of the saints and in the church, we see the power of the resurrected Christ already manifested. And we have a saint in this last century in which those powers were probably more clearly seen than any other in history, especially in recent times. That's St. Padre Pio. If you know anything about the life of Padre Pio, the miracles that surrounded his life were uncounted. Not only could he bilocate, meaning being in two places simultaneously, he was known to have trilocated and quadlocated. I don't know of any other saint in history that's done that. He could also, like our Lord, change the way his body looked. Jesus could appear as a gardener or as just some stranger. Now, Padre Pio never changed the fact that he looked like a Franciscan friar, but he could change his shape, his size. There's a recorded story where there was a woman who was being robbed, an old widow, and some soldiers had broken to her house, and she starts calling out to Padre Pio. Now, he's, you know, 10 miles away in church hearing confessions, but he shows up at her house 10 feet tall, this giant Franciscan monk. The soldiers were terrified. They dropped everything that they were trying to steal and fled. Another recorded instance was some bomber planes were going to drop bombs on a nearby village. And so all of a sudden, and all of them attest to this, there were three or four of them, all of a sudden a 50-foot-tall Franciscan friar was standing in front of their planes, waving them down. They were so terrified, they flew away and dropped their bombs in an empty field. There are also clear accounts of Padre Pio becoming invisible, which I think is awesome. He'd just be there in the church, but for some reason, God didn't want him to be seen by others, and so he was invisible. I can't tell you the number of healings that came through his intercession. Miracle after miracle after miracle. One of the most famous was a little girl had been born without irises. Now, you can't see if you don't have irises. So the mother had asked him to intercede. He prayed, and she was healed, totally healed, perfect vision but she still never had irises. That's not possible. That's an absolute perfect miracle. 
So Padre Pio, clearly already manifesting in this life before his death, all of the traits of the resurrected body of Christ. And why did he do this? Because he was so conformed to Christ crucified. He had truly already died with Christ. And because of that, the resurrected life of Christ could flow more easily through him. We know this because of the stigmata that he bore. He had the wounds of Jesus in his hands, his feet, and his side for 50 years. He bled over a pint of blood a day. Clearly, this was a holy, holy man. But as cool as all of these miracles are, the stigmata, the bilocations, invisibility, all that stuff, it's like Harry Potter or something. As cool as all of that stuff is and all of those miracles were, those were not the greatest things that Padre Pio did. The two greatest things that Padre Pio ever did was celebrate Mass and hear confessions. Those are the most profound miracles. Every priest knows this. To be able to take bread and transform it into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. No healing, no bilocation, nothing else compares to that. And second only to the Eucharist is the sacrament of reconciliation in which God forgives our sins. It's important we focus on this mystery in particular because today, the eighth day of the octave of Easter, is called Divine Mercy Sunday. This day in particular, our Lord wants us to focus on his mercy. And his mercy is manifested first and foremost in his sacraments. There can be no relationship with God, no love, no sharing between him and us if there is not first the forgiveness of sin. If there is no mercy, there is no hope of anything else. And all of the sacraments ideally are oriented towards that mercy. The very first sacrament that all of us receive is baptism, through which we are forgiven of sin, original sin and personal sin washed away. But those of us who were baptized as babies who only had original sin back then, grew up eventually and started having personal sin. Yay! But Jesus thought of that. He gave us confession or reconciliation so that we could approach him once more under the sacrament of the priesthood and receive his mercy. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after rising from the dead, after first telling them to be at peace, giving them his peace, he said this, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Why would our Lord give the power of reconciliation to the apostles at this moment? He was able to do it now because salvation had been won. He's died and he's risen. Now is the time for the forgiveness of sins. But he also gives it to them at this unique moment because it's the most precious gift he could offer in the new life of the church. The power to forgive sins in his name. The gospel message is very simple, right? 
Repent and believe. Repent in what? In your sins. In the sins that you have committed against God's laws and God's teachings. Believe in what? Believe in Jesus Christ who can forgive you of those sins. That's the crux of the entire gospel message. Our Lord wants us all to have the same peace that he offered to the apostles on the day of the resurrection. He wants us all to have that peace. But without the forgiveness of sin, it is not possible. And all of you know this. All of you know this. Every Catholic knows intuitively that they only have peace when their sins are washed away. We don't always take advantage, of course, of the great sacrament of reconciliation. You know, one of the meditations that at times saints have offered for the faithful to help bring people to repentance and to a conversion, conversion away from sin, is to meditate upon the fact that each time you sin, it's like hammering a nail into Jesus' hand or piercing his side with the lance putting the crown of thorns on his head or scourging him. Every time you sin, you're adding to the suffering of Christ. That's what they've said. I remember reading this when I was still fairly young. And honestly, I never liked this meditation. I already felt bad enough that I was sinning. This isn't helping, right? It makes me feel worse. Because no matter how hard I try to stop sinning, I keep doing it. And then I almost despair. Great. I'm just going to keep crucifying you more and more until finally I die. So again, this meditation never worked for me. The saints talked about it, and so I was kind of torn. Well, the saints say it's good, but I just it's not working. So I started praying a lot about this. And I was asking our Lord why this is not helpful for me, and it, is there anything else that could help me turn from sin? And the Lord began to teach me something that's changed my perspective on sin altogether. I've shared this with some of you before. Years ago, seated right in that pew, I was praying alone in the church, and I was talking to Jesus about my sins. And I was telling him how great it would be if he just gave me the grace to stop sinning, right? One, I wouldn't have to go to confession anymore. That'd be fantastic. But two, I wouldn't hurt other people, right? That was the excuse I gave him. Lord, wouldn't it be better if I didn't hurt your people? I mean, if I was a saint like Padre Pio, this would be great. Everything would be perfect around here, or at least much better. My sins and my imperfections hurt other people. And the Lord said to me in prayer, don't worry, my love is enough. I was like, but Lord, I don't want to hurt them. He goes, that's okay. I can heal them. I thought that was a good argument, right, for giving me the grace to never sin again. But then I thought of a much better one, much better argument. I said, well, fine, Lord, that's true. And, and I have to humbly accept that. You're their God, I'm not. But I don't want to hurt you, Jesus. My sins hurt you. I thought that's an even better argument to convince Jesus to give me the grace to stop sinning. But then our Lord said something incredibly unexpected. 
I never even considered this before. He said to me, but what if I want to die for you, David? Would you take that away from me? I mean, I knew theologically that God died for us, that he loves us, but I don't think I'd ever really appreciated how intimate and personal that is. Our Lord is happy, in fact, joyful, to suffer for us day in and day out. If that's what we need, it brings him joy to love us in that way. And yet he showed me, in fact, that that's technically not true. Theologically, we don't actually add to the suffering of Christ every time we sin. The reason we know this is because the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death, was perfect. He suffered perfectly for sin. But you can't suffer more if you're already suffering perfectly. Perfect means complete, fulfilled. If you think about it, the fathers say that when Jesus was circumcised as a baby, that suffering and that little blood that he shed was sufficient to redeem all sin. If that's true, why did he die on the cross? Why did he go so far as to die in this way when the circumcision was sufficient? It's because God doesn't love us enough. He doesn't just love us as much as we need to be loved. He loves us with all of his love. That is super abundant love. It's not sufficient. It's super abundant, more than we need. He shed every drop of his blood, not because that was necessary, but to prove to us how far he is willing to go. So imagine, if you will, this is a helpful little example. You get in a car accident, and you don't have money to fix your car. So you come to Father Miller, and you're like, Father Miller, do you have 100 bucks? Yeah, it's a cheap accident. But you have $100 I can have to fix my car. And I said, of course, I'm more than happy to help you. And I give you $10 million. That's the way Jesus loves. Sure, $100 would have been enough. It would have foot the bill, so to speak. But our Lord's sacrifice did not just foot the bill. It was so great that St. Faustina tells us, because Jesus related to her, that if you were to take all of the sins of all of humans of all of time and put them all together, all of that sin would not equal a single drop of water in compared to the ocean that is his mercy. So just think about that for a moment. Your sin is a fraction of that drop. And that drop is an indistinguishable fraction of the ocean. And that ocean is his mercy. That means that no matter how many times you sin or how bad those sins may be, he's already suffered enough and won more than enough grace to cleanse you and forgive you. That's it. In fact, when he was dying, as God in his divine intellect, he thought of you individually. And he thought of every sin you have committed, not only up to this moment, but every single one you would commit for the rest of your life on earth. 
And he said to his heavenly father, I die for them. That is the mercy of Christ. We have a deeper understanding of the divine mercy, particularly in this century because of St. Faustina. Your familiar Polish nun who received visions of our Lord and Our Lady, but the divine mercy image that we have over at the confessional says, Jesus, I trust in you. That was commissioned by our Lord through Faustina. It was our Lord who taught Faustina so much of his mercy. It was our Lord through Faustina who requested that the second Sunday of Easter be renamed Divine Mercy Sunday. And that's what St. John Paul II did. But he wanted his mercy to be preached more often. And he said that if a priest preaches on his mercy, on Divine Mercy Sunday, that anyone, any sinner, listening to that sermon would receive all of the graces they need to go to confession. Everything that they need. That's why it's so important that we priests listen to our Lord and do this. Why is it so hard for us at times to go to confession? It's always because of our pride. We are ashamed of the things we have done. Our guilt is a heavy burden to bear. And we don't want to have to tell the priest our sins. Well, the church has done something very loving to help encourage you to go to confession. She's created the seal of confession. Back in the early church, there was no seal of confession. Do you know what you had to do to get your sins forgiven? On Sunday, during Mass, the sinners would be invited forward, and they would profess their sins to the whole body. Then they would be given a penance. They'd have to go do the penance, and then they could come back. Sometimes the penance would last years. Aren't you glad we don't do it that way anymore? Now the church wants to protect your identity, as our Lord desires. And so she's created the seal of confession, such that if a priest, bound by this seal, ever breaks it, even accidentally, because this is one thing so serious, it's like accidentally killing somebody drunk driving. You're still guilty. So even if a priest breaks this seal, he's automatically excommunicated. And if he dies unrepentant, he goes to hell. That's how serious it is. And there's only one man in the world who can forgive him. And that is the Pope. Only the Holy Father can forgive a priest who's broken the seal of confession. No one else is permitted. That's how seriously the church wants to protect you and encourage you to take advantage of the sacrament of reconciliation. I actually have a little bronze seal I keep in there on the floor. Not to remind me, I, I remember the seal, but somebody gave it to me as a gift. So it's a good little reminder. I don't mean seal like a plaque. I mean seal like, a... okay, good. You got it. just making sure you're awake. It's early on a Sunday morning. Another thing you have to consider about us priests is we hear confessions for a living. It's kind of what we do. And like a surgeon who's performed any type of surgery a number of times, 
they're not shocked or grossed out or weirded by anything that they see. You know, this is just blood, it's just organs, it is what it is. You become, on some level, in a healthy way, desensitized to sin if you're a priest. Because it's not like you guys are inventing new sins. Oh, Father, I got a doozy. You'll never heard this before. Really? There are ten commandments, seven deadly sins. You're not coming up with anything new. And any priest can tell you, if, you, if you've been ordained to the priesthood for even less than a year, you've heard it all. You've heard it all. I think I'm allowed to say this, but the only thing I've never heard is cannibalism. That's it. It's the only one. But honestly, if you have to confess it, confess it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the whole purpose of the sacrament is to forgive sin. But you're not going to surprise or shock the priest. This is what we do. But some of the greatest advice I have received about going to confession, because it's hard for me as well. I go usually once a week. This advice came from one of the fathers of the church, and he said, Jesus Christ, who suffered so much humiliation in order to forgive you of sin, deserves that you suffer at least a little humiliation in repenting. So when you know you need to get to confession, and yet your pride is getting in the way, remember this. It's just a small act of humiliation to go and confess my sins so that Jesus could forgive me. I will offer that to our Lord as an act of love. Other saints have taught us that our Lord is so grateful to the soul that has come to confession, he'll grant it anything it asks for afterward. Think about that for a second. Our Lord is grateful that you came and asked for forgiveness. It's like a parent whose child has broken a rule and then come and apologized, and the parent says, oh, you're so wonderful. You want some ice cream, some cake? No punishment, reward. That's the way our Lord is. The reason he responds with such gratitude after you come to confession is because there's one thing he wants more than anything else, and that is you. And the only thing preventing him from having you is your sin. And you have let him take that sin away. Therefore, you have given him the very thing that you want, the very thing that he wants, to be close to you once more. That seems counterintuitive because we, in our weakness and concupiscence, don't love like he loves. Don't ever underestimate his love for you. I'm not saying you'll ever understand it, but don't underestimate it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.